This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Wild Precious Life is brought to you by Porter Square Books, Boston Edition, a welcoming space to gather with neighbors, linger over books, read with kids, chat with booksellers, and feel part of the community. Whether it's an author series, book club, or regular story hour, we'll work to make it happen. Shopping with us also supports Grub Street, one of the nation's leading creative writing centers. By rigorously developing voices of every type and talent, and by removing barriers to entry, Grub Street fosters the creation of meaningful stories and ensures that excellent writing remains vital and relevant, both in Boston and beyond. Learn more or shop online at portersquarebooks.com. And we're brought to you by the Ashland University Low Res MFA. Expand your writing practice and refine your craft within the supportive community of Ashland University's Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. Our accomplished faculty will help you find your voice and complete your degree at your own pace. Learn more and enroll today at ashland.edu. What do you do with your nightmares? As I've gotten older, I'm prone to the the middle-of-the-night anxiety wake-up. If you've experienced this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It might be two, three, or four in the morning, and I'll wake up. I'm just rolling over. Don't check your phone, I'll tell myself. You're still asleep. But I'm not. I'm awake. And that's when the worries set in. I'll think about that doctor's appointment I need to make, about those non-specific symptoms that may or may not be life-threatening and that will probably leave my children without a mother. Or I'll worry about those work responsibilities I need to tackle first thing. Or that meeting I've been dreading with my boss. And don't forget about the note I forgot to write to my daughter's teacher about the field trip. And what about the profound disappointments of my life? and how I haven't amounted to what I thought I might. And, 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 on a logical note, I know there's almost nothing I can do about any of this, especially in the middle of the night. Everything on my anxiety to-do list is going to seem more manageable and less calamitous in the light of the early morning. And yet, some nights, many nights, I toss and turn and catastrophize. What intrigues me so much about this week's guest is that she's found a way to turn her nightmares into action. Julie Carrick Dalton writes her climate change worries into stories and turns existential dread into books for the rest of us. She has me thinking about how we can be better stewards of this planet and how all of us might better turn our own worries into action. 
Julie Carrick Dalton is the Boston-based author of The Last Beekeeper and Waiting for the Night Song, a Breadloaf, Tin House, and Grub Street novel incubator alum Julie is a frequent speaker on the topic of fiction in the age of climate crisis. Her writing has appeared in the Chicago Review of Books, Newsweek, the Boston Globe, Electric Literature, and other publications. When she isn't writing, you can usually find Julie digging in her garden, skiing, kayaking, or walking her dogs. Julie Carrick Dalton, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited you're here, too, because there's this funny thing that happens in writing circles. I imagine this probably happens in in most circles, in nursing circles, in welding circles. But what happens is that you keep bumping into someone. They're writing their work long before you actually meet them. So I won Michael Zapata's book in a raffle at a party in Chicago. And then I saw he'd blurbed your novel. I interviewed Kirsten Chen about her most recent book and attended a talk she did about counterfeit. And then I'm double-checking something on her social media handle, and there she is in conversation with you in Cambridge. I read Nancy Johnson's book, uh, The Kindest Lie, her, her debut novel, and there you were again. So on and on and on. At some point, I just figured that the the pinball game of the universe just kind of keeps bumping me up against the name Julie Carrick Dalton. So I thought... I'm going to go meet her. Well, I am happy to be here. And I've also been hearing your voice a lot, listening to your podcast. So this just feels like a, a natural meeting. Yeah, yeah. And since we are finally meeting, I suppose maybe we should start with some sort of introduction and we should get to know each other. So <laughs> um, beyond all the things I already know about you from the socials and, and from folks who maybe haven't had the pleasure of reading your debut novel or this this latest one, why don't you just go ahead and will you please tell us your story? Thanks for asking. So I was a journalist for a long time, so I've always been writing. Um, and I, I turned to fiction later in life. My debut was published. My debut is called Waiting for the Night Song. It came out in 2021. And it was published when I was 50 years old. So I was very excited. That was a big milestone for me. Um, and, you know, the all of my fiction, I like to think of it as a manifestation of my climate anxieties. So the things that keep me up at night are the things I like to write about because it's kind of my way of processing them. So with uh, The Last Beekeeper, which is coming out, uh, it's a 2023 release, it um, it all started because I keep bees. And several years ago, uh, I had this hive that was just doing great. It was thriving. There was lots of little larvae growing in there. The honey cells were filling up. And then one day, all 40,000 of them died in one day in a pile. And it was really devastating for me because, you know, I've been caring for these creatures and there's something really intimate about caring for a hive of bees, like watching them come in and out of the hive um, and observing patterns. And then they all died in one day. And so I restocked my hive. I was like, I can do this, you know, again. And they did the same thing the next year, right at the same time of year. So it was not a disease. It wasn't a, um, you know, colony collapse disorder or a virus or a parasite. It had to have been a poison, something in uh, like some toxic chemical that a neighbor was using on their lawn because it would otherwise wouldn't happen so fast. So that created this big what if in my mind, like what if all of them died? And if my bees were dying, um, you know, in mass numbers, what were happening to our local pollinators? And what would that happen to my ecosystem if the pollinators died? So it just started this avalanche of questions in my mind. And that's where the book, The Last Beekeeper came from. Yeah. So in this newest novel, as folks are learning, we encounter this world where 
honeybees have gone extinct. And then as you're alluding to, like without these master pollinators, at least in your book, you know, the crops have failed. People are starving. Unemployment is through the roof and life on our planet becomes both so eerily familiar and then also, you know, quite strange. I felt like the book was part apocalypse and part like Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that combination. That's a really good yeah. analogy. It's like the apocalypse meets Laura Ingalls Wilder. So like similar to the Great Depression, the American government is handing out food rations and embarking upon like a kind of New Deal program. They're trying to put people back to work. And the job to me was so fascinating. The, the, the people they put to work are hand-pollinating plants, right? Workers are trying to grow vegetables in these giant greenhouses so that people can eat again. And amid all that, we meet Sasha. She's the daughter of a man who's been known as the last beekeeper. And, um, yeah, so this apocalyptic little Laura Ingalls Wilder uh, world is born. How much of your brainstorming for this novel was based in scientific research and how much of it was based in just like imaginations and what if scenarios? It was, it's really a marriage of both. Um, I did do a lot of research. I had a, a beekeeping consultant because um, although I've kept bees, I'm not an expert on bees. So I, I brought in a consultant to talk about the science um, and I did a lot of research on, you know, our agricultural systems and our food security and what crops are at risk, what foods will we still have? And trying to just imagine all of these things colliding at one time of us, you know, losing when we when we lose a lot of our foods, we lose food security, which disrupts economic systems, which disrupts politics. It just cascades. So I kind of let my mind go wild and thinking of all the ways it could play out. But like you said, there is that little house of prairie vibe that they're squatting in an abandoned farmhouse, which is the farmhouse where Sasha and her father, the last beekeeper, where, where Sasha grew up. And so she's back in a comfortable space, a familiar space, her home, but there's no electricity. There's, you know, they don't have running water. It's a, it's a little house on the prairie vibe. And so it's you know, the future and the past colliding on this farm. And so it also was a lot of my childhood in some ways. And my grandparents had a farm in the mountains in Western Maryland. We had we had running water, but only cold running water. We didn't even have a bathtub or a shower. We had to heat water in a tub and, and, and take baths in this, you know, big galvanized steel tub. We cooked on a fire on, on a stove that you had to put logs in the fire and there was no television, no telephone, and it was heated by wood. And so I kind of dug into some of those past feelings and there's a cabin if you know if you've read the book that she's always remembering this cabin that had, her parents had taken her to and, and that was my grandparents farm for me going back into those memories I thought there was this great um dual narrative going on so at the one time we have Sasha who as you said is returning home she's been away in her case in a in a foster care sort of uh, state situation. Her father's gone to jail. She's being raised a, a ward of the state and she she grows out of it and she's free and she tries to go home. So at the same time we get this narrative about Sasha finding her way home, we also start to get these murmurings about the bees. Yes, yes, they've been declared extinct and yet every once in a while there's a buzzing and it's a bee trying to find its own way home. And I, you talked about like the celestial compasses that bees always know where they are. 
they always have this celestial compass guiding them home. And I, I just love the the that we had two two things returning home, right? We've got Sasha and all these folks trying to find their way back. And at the same time, we have the bees trying to to be reborn in this world that has declared them gone. And yet there are these murmurings. There was something really beautiful about the way you set that up. Uh, thank you. I actually toyed with the idea of naming it Celestial Compass, but I, I thought it didn't really reflect what the story was about. But I just love that phrase, Celestial Compass. But yeah, bees know where they are, and uh, there's, you know, they they can always find their way back to their hive, which I thought was really kind of beautiful. And that Sasha, her father, um, kind of in, gives her this idea when she's a child that she's connected to the bees and that she understands the bees and they understand her, and it's some sort of in her mind as a child a magical connection that even when she outgrows this belief, she still kind of believes it. Like she still sort of thinks she's a bee in some ways, and with no mistake that her job is that she's. A bee. She's a pollinator. She's pollinating food that the bees can no longer pollinate. So this connection from, you know, from the bees and Sasha, it was very intentional that she, they both, like you said, were trying to find their way home. Yeah, there are so many beautiful um, memories because this is a, I call it not a dual point of view, but dual time period, I guess I would call it, where we've got, similar to actually to Waiting for the Night Song, I suppose, we've got Sasha when she's a 20-something-year-old in this new world where bees have become extinct, but we also get these recollections back to when she's a child and she's being raised by her father. And he is, he's imparting all of these beautiful little, little notes of wisdom, right? So there's one about the, the pitch, the way that the bees buzz, you know, he says it's, it's, it's like they hum at a G note, like on mom's piano. Is that true? I don't even, yeah. Yeah. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah, I think I've I've run from too many bees in my life. I've <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just stand still next time and listen. Yeah, so that Sasha herself is a is a musician. She plays the violin, and we've got these beautiful rememberings where her father is talking about how much the bees will come to know and trust her, and that as a musician, she's she's playing the violin um, near her bees, and she wants to know like how do they know? How do they know? And he's just like they just know. They communicate with signals that only the bees understand. And Sasha herself feels like she communicates with the bees. And even though she outgrows being a child, I feel like she holds on to that, that she is someone who can follow the the messages that the bees are trying to tell us. As an adult, she still believes that. Yeah, and I love that she still believes in a little bit of magic. You know, that she, you know, she might not you know, articulate that to someone else, but deep down inside, she still believes a little bit in this magic of her, her special connection to the bees. Yeah. Are you someone who's afraid of bees? No, not at all. Not, not I'm not at all. But it was like this great ohm, you know, like the sound of meditation that's, it, but it's all around you. It's like this, you know, surround sound of this vibration. And when you're there, sometimes it feels like it's in inside of you so that's where that came from that she felt like she had like internalized the hum of the bees and she could feel it in her fingertips even when she wasn't with the bees and that's where that came from is from when I would be with the bees and I could almost sometimes almost feel like the sound was coming from inside my head because they were all around me that's beautiful that's beautiful and quite the opposite of the experience I think that most of us grew up with with bees right I I saw the the movie killer bees I was probably five or I, all I know is I was at my grandparents' house and one of my aunts was watching that 
old Michael Caine movie. And I became convinced that all, all, um, you know, all bees had like a taste for mammal blood and were out for, out to kill us. And so I remember being very late to kindergarten the next day because it was it was like dandelion season in the spring, and I was tiptoeing, just trying not to be killed by bees. So I, I think that it's really, really important for those of us who are concerned about the earth to outgrow these childish ideas about what is and is not harmful, that we grow up as children believing that that bees are bad, that they could sting you and it can hurt. But, I mean, you, you had two hives that you lost, and this is not a, this is not an outlier. And the I, I read just a little bit. I am I'm there's there's like the word expert and then there's the word amateur and then whatever's below that is about my understanding. But I I read just a little and we don't entirely know why the bees are dying. Some of them get the mites. Some some of the colonies don't overwinter. But we we have some suspicions about why the bees are dying, don't we? That that a lot of it is is things we do to beautify our own areas uh, is, is at least what I read. Is that your understanding about why the bees are dying? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. Colony collapse disorder is this mysterious syndrome where you'll have a thriving colony and then they just don't return home to the hive. And how it's, and we talked about the celestial compasses, bees know how to get home. So maybe something's disrupting this, the compass. They just don't return home. It's not that you're finding them dead. You never find them. It's really mysterious. Um, there have been all sorts of theories dealing with things from cell phone signals to um, chemicals disrupting their, you know, their nervous systems. Um, lawn chemicals, um, big agriculture, you know, pesticides and um, herbicides. Um, also, drought, rising temperatures, disrupting an entire ecosystem that sets things off. That maybe a habitat that was hospitable to the pollinators isn't so hospitable now. So they're they're moving to other locations, maybe not settling in as well. Um, drought situations. But another really big one is big agriculture, mono agriculture, those farms that grow soybeans for miles and miles and miles, and there's nothing else there. So they'll have these beekeepers, these industrial beekeepers bring in millions of bees, just boxes and boxes of these hives of bees just for the season to pollinate a certain crop. And then they pack them up on an 18 wheeler and they drive off to the, you know, to the almonds in California or to the blueberries in Maine. And they cart them around the country, and that's not a natural life cycle um, for bees. And so if you lose one crop in an area, and it's the only crop, like if there were a blight on, you know, soybeans or whatever the, the thing is, and you lose it, we you've destroyed all the other um, sources of pollen and nectar in the area because you've only planted the one thing. So it's a combination of, you know, lack of diversity in their food sources, chemicals, Maybe cell signals. I don't know how real that is. I mean, I've read about this, but um, all these things are converging in in conjunction with climate change. So I think it's it's hard to pin down one one cause. I think it's all of them. I often think about what an individual can do in the face of a systemic problem. You know, I'm one person, and yet there are things that we can do. I remember years ago, my you know, the first house we bought. We lived in Connecticut, and the the yard was terrible, and so we, we paid for a lawn service, and it made the grass look prettier. And then when my daughter was born, I got to reading about, you know, kids don't need to be tumbling around in, in yards that have chemicals on them, and so we stopped that. And then the more I learned about how much the, the bees need the dandelions 
and the wildflowers and those those Johnny jump ups or whatever you call them, the little the little flowers that come up in your yard and the crocuses, all of that, that that that, that was going to be sustaining for for the the ecosystem. And I remember we had a frog one year and I was like, ah, and my husband's like, no, no, no. This is a great sign. A frog is a great sign that there are bugs to feed the frog. And if the frogs can, if it can be eaten the bugs, that there are probably there are worms in the grass and that those are doing the, the important work of composting your soil and that, that there are little signs that you can look for that you've got a healthy ecosystem even in your yard. And if you've killed off all of that stuff, then you are definitely contributing to these these little these little tiny things right the the flap of the butterfly's wings that you don't entirely know what it's what it's um hurting but it's hurting something yeah and i'm a big advocate of pollinator gardens and i think and that is a small thing that anybody can do you know if they have if they have a space to do it obviously it could be a window box if you're in an apartment i live in a apartment on a sixth floor um, you can put things on your window boxes if you have a balcony or roof deck. Um, and I do have, um, we have a family place in New Hampshire that um, I have a pollinator garden there. And, you know, we have, you know, echinacea and daisies and lavender and all sorts of different cone flowers. And um, it's, it's amazing how many insects it attracts. Like when I sit there, I have a, I, I write in New Hampshire. It's where I do probably the most, the biggest bulk of my writing is done in New Hampshire. And looking out the window, I can see, you know, sometimes like six monarch butterflies. I don't see them anywhere else in my daily life, just on a normal, my normal routine. I don't see butterflies very often, but in my yard, I see a ton of them. There's so many bees in the yard and a lot of variety of bees too, not just a single type of bee. And I think that just that, that shows me that the effort of planting those plants is doing something. It's, it's giving a place of refuge and a place of consistent food sources for, and it's just my yard. I'm not talking about acres and acres of flowers, but if everybody did that, it, it would, it would diversify the food sources for the pollinators in their area. And I think, you know, I do talk a lot about flowers and, and not just the bees use of the flowers, but the humans use in terms of, um, you know, medicinal properties of different plants that, um, because we, like you had said, it's kind of got that little house in the prairie vibe. They're kind of going back to some more natural sources of, um, medicine because they don't have access to healthcare and it's all linked. All of it's like the cycle of, you know, we protect the plants, the plants protect us, the bees feed the plant, you know, fertilize the plants. So it's all, you know, a big cycle that we need to participate in. Yeah. No, I was thinking a lot about that as I was reading the last beekeeper. Is it true that you um, started your farm because you were concerned about a homeless moose? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is true. Um, I mean, it's like a, a very you know pared down version of the story. But <laughs> so the, we this family home that we have in New Hampshire. We you know I've spent time up there forever, and um, there's a was a hundred acre track of woods right near the my home and we would sometimes we've had moose walk into our yard like literally into our yard and bear we've had so many count I can't count how many bears we've had that walk into our yard we also have like skunks and things I don't love as much but we have these amazing creatures tons of deer and you know foxes and this track of woods was um, on the market to be timbered and developed so they started clear cutting it while it was on the market and it just like it just like hurt me just to think about all those animals that lived in that forest and that they would no longer be coming to my house because that's where they came from. And so, um, 
I, you know, in a way that some people like, you know, panic shop clothes or makeup or outfits online, I panic shopped a forest and I did it very quickly. <laughs> it wasn't a long drawn out thing. I, I got together with a friend who um, we created a business model um, that she needed a place to board her horses in a winter friendly barn. So we bought the land or I bought the land. She leased it from me. We built a barn. Um, we created, um, we put all the, these trails in the woods. There's about two miles of uh, trails in the woods that we put into conservation and open to the public. So anybody could come enjoy these woods, but nobody could cut them down. And so I started farming it. This is, I think about 15 years ago that, and I, I didn't know anything about farming um, at all, <laughs> nothing. It was an education <laughs> by fire. Um, and I messed up a lot. I went to school, got a, went back to Tufts and got a um, certificate in sustainable agriculture. And um, I learned from that piece of land. Um, it taught me everything, just trying things and messing up and waiting for the night song, my debut novel is um, set in this where my farm is. I like this idea that for those folks who are trying to become, we've got some aspiring writers who listen to the show, you too can become a farmer and then it will lead to bookish success. <laughs> yes, it's a logical <laughs> path. Yes, I recommend it to everyone. What did you like to plant and grow? Did you have some favorite crops or what did you not like to plant and grow? <laughs> peas. Oh my gosh. I love eating peas, but they're they're just so tedious picking them, you know, and green beans, just the picking of them is so like, you know, picking each one. So I plant, I, what I did is I never went to market. It was not a commercial um, grower, but um, we, we grow food. I'm a little bit of a food nerd that I dehydrate food. I can food. I cook a lot. I give away food, but we also donate food to um, a food pantry in the area. So we would always plant more than we needed. And it gave me an excuse to invite people in to help me plant, to help me manage things couple times a year, not very often, but then they would know a lot of the food was being donated. So it made for a nice, especially with my kids, they would invite their friends over. That was basically my labor was my kids, my kids' friends. <laughs> I would entice them with like desserts and, um, you know, movie nights and they all thought it was great, but you know, it was, a, um, you know, it was, it was a real education for me and it was, it was really fun to learn something, a, a, a way of, of living and growing food that I had never experienced. Um, but potatoes are always my favorite thing in the world to grow. I, I, I can't even tell you, you plant a potato, you cut it in pieces. And so they all have like an eye on them and you plant them, you stick them deep in the dirt and you cover them up and you just sit there and you wait. And then the little leaves come up, but you can't see what's under there. Are there really potatoes growing under there? Is there really anything going on? And then when the leaves start turning yellow, you know, it's time to pull them up. And then you yank up the whole bunch and every time by some miracle, there's a gigantic clump of huge potatoes. I swear every single time it's a miracle. Like I, I never believe each one I pull up. It's like, it's a miracle. So that's my favorite all time potatoes. That's right. We've only done potatoes once or twice. And I, I am kind of guilty of, I get really excited about planting and watering early and then I just lose steam and then my harvest is intermittent, but you're right. Potatoes are so magical. Unlike a carrot where you're like, is it done yet? And you pull it up and it's about the size of your thumbnail. <laughs> exactly. like, Why isn't it done yet? You're right. The potato, because it'll tell you the, the tops will droop and then you know it's time to pick them. I forgot I love, about that. I love showing kids the potatoes because to the kids, all this green stuff, it just looks like a weed. And then you get them to yank it up, you know, further back into it a little bit and pull it out. And there'll be like, you know, six to eight huge potatoes. And the kids think that's amazing. 
because it's like, it's magic. You know, they just came right out of the ground. So that, and I actually haven't seen in the book where they do that, where they're, where they're she, when she's out, Sasha is out foraging for, um, for vegetables in this abandoned garden um, with her roommate Gino. And, you know, she yanks up a potato plant and, and it's, uh, um, it's a miracle. Yeah. I loved her foraging because when, as we mentioned, Sasha has gone back to her childhood home. So she has she has a couple very contrived scenes where she's like, I'm just going to go see if I can find anything for us to eat. And and she forages <laughs> in their old garden. And so, it, in fact, some things have gone to seed and have, have come back every year. And that's that should have been another hint for us that the bees weren't entirely extinct, right? That, that they're, yes, the wind can pollinate some things, but the, uh, the idea being that she was able to find you know, some greens here or um, a potato or something that was growing under underground and also their old pantry that was behind kind of, a, oh, look, I found lentils. <laughs> so my, my parents kept a, um, a larder in our basement when I was growing up. My mom was a big tanner. My dad grew tons of stuff. He had a, he called it a garden, but it was 10 acres that he gardened. Um, so my mom canned, my mom and dad would have these like week long, like, you know, intense canning things where they would can potatoes, I mean, tomatoes and all, everything. And they had, we kept a larder in our basement and it was, a, it was a magical place. You open it up and there's just all this food in there. So I kind of, that's, there's a lot of little snippets in my life that I, I handed over to Sasha in this book. Yeah. I wondered about that. I don't usually ask folks about their dedication pages because I often breeze right by that, knowing that those words are intended for, you know, one or two specific individuals and not for me. But I, I kind of hovered on your dedication page because you, you dedicated <laughs> it to your parents. And um, I even wrote some of this down. You said, quote, I've had the privilege of watching my mother and father excel in numerous endeavors, including puppeteering, belly dancing, driving an ambulance, selling real estate, cleaning houses, writing genealogy books, farming, and that super secret thing we can't talk about. You are the world's best storytellers and even better secret keepers and you, and you go on to thank them puppeteering belly dancing yeah. it sounds like you're fortunate to be raised by some fascinating talented loving and eccentric parents what was it like growing up in your house i mean it was to me is perfectly normal and wonderful so my mom ran a puppet theater for a long time and she wrote all of her own scripts my very first publishing credit I, or I don't know if it was publishing but performance credit was I when I was 10 I wrote a script for her puppet theater and performed it it was very exciting all, all I remember about it was there was a wolf with a stomach ache I cannot remember what the rest of the show was about but um my mom was very creative she's a wonderful storyteller like for, and to my children she just she has the gift of story that she can just on the off the cuff come up with a bedtime story like she she would read books to me and my sister but she also she usually just made them up um, and her puppet shows were fantastic. Um, and so I, I, I'm not going to answer any follow-up questions to what I'm going to say about this part. But so I grew up in Europe um, for part of my childhood. And my parents were involved in intelligence. We'll just leave that there and without a lot of details. But they were involved in intelligence during the Cold War in Europe. And so they were always doing these other things as well. And so I had a really fun um eclectic weird childhood that seemed just completely normal and rich and full of great memories another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I've read both of your books and in both this one, The Last Beekeeper and in Waiting for the Night Song, you introduce us to an important character, a main character in, in Beekeeper. It's, it's Sasha, who was raised, at least in part, in a state-run uh, system. But also in um, Waiting for the Night Song, we, we meet the summer boy, Garrett, who also grows up in and out of foster care. And, you know, we learn about the egregiousness of the conditions that kids too often receive. It's in both of your books. So I'm wondering about the importance of this to you. What's, um, I don't know, what do you, why is that so much a thread in both of your novels? Yeah, I I think maybe it's kind of a, a reverse of my own life. I had an incredibly stable childhood. I have just phenomenal parents. I mean, they're still, they're both alive and healthy. And um, I talk to them constantly. I seek advice from them and they were, and always have been really strong role models for me. And so, you know, the idea of not having that is very foreign to me. And it's something that, that absence, you know, what is that, what would that mean for these characters? I, I would, you know, like to kind of think deep into that because it's not my experience. And I, you know, I wonder what would I have been like if I didn't have the stability that I have. And, you know, that's a very common thing. It's not like it's rare to have, you know, instability in your family, but um, it it was not an experience I had. Yeah. No, I was thinking about that, just having read the two of them, thinking about how the books are in conversation with one another, not just with the kids in in foster care, but also um, these characters who are so in line with the harmony of of the of the world there's something really beautiful about the way your characters know the natural world it's not just that Sasha's in in touch with the bees or that she can pretend to you know to to pretend to forage on land that she that she um and her family have but there's there's just this um this gorgeousness I'm trying to think I wrote something down like when when Sasha's wandering through um kind of the natural world this kinship you know, it's not just the the memory of the perfect G, but she falls into sync with the rhythms of the forest. She notices a cluster of fiery tiger lilies craning their necks towards patches of sun, sifting through the swaying hemlock in the bony shadow of a slippery elm. That she notices the the earthy stew of mulch and decay, and that smell loosens the tightness in her chest. And then she thinks about the millions of molecules that make up the forest and a doe walks into the clearing that the way that the natural world envelops the characters in your book is really beautiful. It's really lovely. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me. I, I, I write my characters seeing the world the way I see them. You know, my main characters, both Sasha and Katie from Waiting for the Night Song, are, are both, you know, have a similar worldview 
as I do, I think, um, especially the children, you know, the child versions of both of those characters. I was that half feral child, you know, running around and jumping in the creek and, you know, splashing around and, you know, building dams with rocks and climbing trees and building forts. That was who I was as a, as a kid. And I think that comes out a lot in, in my characters. I am very, I'm, I like the texture of nature. Like I like to feel tree bark and the, the, you know, the texture of rocks and the, you know, the, the, grit of dirt between your fingers or you know when sometimes when you eat something you get dirt in your teeth the way that or you know or like a, a grain of sand the way the grit feels in your mouth that's how I feel like I experience the world and I think that's kind of the only way I could write a character I don't know that I could write a character without that because I feel like that's the way I breathe my intake of information comes through the senses yeah they seem very very tethered to the natural world and because of that I think that when you layer onto it and waiting for the night song there's a crime that's committed in that um, that beautiful lake community, but in in this book, the crime is is it's more diffuse. It's it's not a it's not a murder. It's a it's this great collapse of the pollinators, and then we get uh, layered on top of that is is like the criminal behavior of how the government responds. So yes, on the one hand, the government is helping people with jobs and food, but but. There are other uh, more nefarious ways that the government acts incorrectly in your book. And, and I won't give it all, all away, but, but that when, when we get this gorgeousness of the natural world with your main characters and then they come up against something else, which in this case might be Congress criminalizing reported bee sightings without evidence or you know deterring people from saying that the bees survive, that, that we get – the way the natural world and the, I'll, I'll say, artificial world collide creates a real um, kinship, at least for me, between Sasha and Gino and, and Ian and, and, and Millie even, and the, the characters who are, are squatting and, and trying to make the best they can, pulling up potatoes and cutting echinacea to, to, to cure, to help wounds and putting bicycles back together, that the way that they're trying to survive on the land really makes the um, the problems seem very man-made that that exist in this book that they're, they're way we've turned against nature yeah and it, I mean it's true I mean it's the world we live in now too like most of the problems you know ecological environmental you know climate changes um, you know we can look in the mirror and see where they came from uh, you know we did this and um, and there are people who profit from the destruction of nature, um, not just from things like a piece of land being deforested, you know, that's an obvious profit right there, but just the, the, the overall destruction of like an ecosystem and the implications it has on communities. So I'm wondering in Waiting for the Night Song or The Last Beekeeper, was there ever a scene that you wrote and you just had to like write an X through it? It's gone. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, it was excruciating for me. It was a night waiting for the night song. So I was able to partially repurpose and use this scene later in the book in a completely different way. But it is, if you remember, there's a scene involving a bear um, on yes. the highway. There's a very personal story behind that scene about why I wrote that scene in the book um, that had a lot of personal meaning to me and still does. But it didn't need to be in my book. What's the thing that happened in your real life with the bear? Um, so I was driving down 93 in New Hampshire, and I saw someone hit a bear cub. And they stopped, and they got out of the car. 
and I was driving by, my response, my mental response time wasn't fast enough to think, get back in the car. There's a mother bear. Like it had to be there. Like I couldn't see the bear, mother bear, because it was flanked by a forest. But I, I knew it had to be there. And I, and it was this teenage boy, and I was a mile down the road before it clicked in my mind, and I couldn't turn around. And the next exit was like seven miles up the road, and there was nothing I could do. And I had spent the whole rest of this two-hour drive hating myself for not having had a quick enough response. And then I start playing in my head, but what could I have done? Like, what would I have done? How could I have helped someone if they were being attacked by a bear? When is it, when is it, um, when do you risk your life for a stranger? And is the guilt of not trying worse than the risk you're taking? So that, that guilt versus the risk and balancing is the guilt, carrying the guilt of inaction worth taking the risk or, you know, worth not taking the risk. So I went through this. I had this whole emotional process the whole way home. And I was like checking like the police stations. I was like, I'm going to be attacked by a bear today. And no, I never heard anything happen to this young man. But that same day when I got home, um, I live on a lake. And I was with my five-year-old son out in the backyard and five little girls went out on a canoe and um, in the middle of the lake, they flipped the boat on and they were screaming and they were hysterical and nobody was coming. And I'm alone with a five-year-old on the shore of a lake and I can't possibly pull five little girls out of the water with my one-person kayak and leave my son, you know, alone on, by the water. And I had this moment of like, yes, you can. Like you can do this because you know that inaction isn't the guilt of inaction isn't worth the you know isn't worth it, and so I I had one extra life jacket besides mine. I got in the kayak and I went out and I pulled all five girls out of the lake and they're all okay, and um and it was a really scary day and one of them got hurt a little bit um and it was really awful for me because I the whole time I kept imagining like what if something happens and one of them doesn't make it am I responsible. And if I didn't try, was I responsible? And I, I was just processing a lot. So that story about the bear was really about me processing. I wrote that scene that night, the one about the bear on the side of the you know, is it was really my way of processing the idea of when do you help a stranger? And when is it worth taking, risking your life to help a stranger? Um, that's a really long answer to that question. Sorry. No, that's beautiful. I, I, I love the idea that one that sometimes the I wouldn't even call it a mistake but the inaction that we take in life might turn into action in the course of a book I, lo I love that 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 as writers that sometimes sometimes we do get the chance to rewrite a story that it might turn out differently than it did in real life and then I also just like the idea that we, we we're always just doing the best we can and, yeah. and, and I'm driving and thinking, and I can barely do two things at once. And I too would have driven right by and thought later, oh, wait, I wonder if he, that's just that, that we're always just doing the best that we can. Then you can just think about what's the next best thing that you can do. And in that case, it was to help those little girls on that lake. My goodness. And you, you've got all kinds of gorgeous mantras in this book. I wrote, I wrote some of them down that it's, you know, it's okay to grieve for the things we've lost. But it's more important to protect what we still have. Um, our stories belong to us, not to anyone else. But sometimes they're heavy. I like this one, second chances only come along once. <laughs> <laughs> That's also could apply to that, that, that story with the canoe and the bears. Like I feel like I wasn't able to stop and try to intervene in that one circumstance. But the, the weight 
I was caring because I didn't stop prompted me to act the second time. So it gave me a second chance to try to help somebody. So I do, I, I really do believe, believe those things, especially the, the idea of um, not letting the grief over what we've lost um, paralyze us. Because I think, you know, we're losing so much every day between insects, birds, like everything. We're losing so much every day. And it'd be really easy to sink into grief instead of looking up at the things that are still here and loving them. Like if you, if you don't love the things that are left, you're not going to fight for them. So like, look up, look at them, you know, see them. And, you know, I've, I've shared this analogy before, but I think about it sometimes if, you know, if you have a bird feeder and you have, tw you have 20 hummingbirds every day and you love those hummingbirds and they're stunning and beautiful. And then things start changing and you only have two hummingbirds left and the eight, what happened to those other 18, it's really sad. You could spend your time mourning the 18 or you could cherish the two that are left and try to protect them and try to save them. And that's, kind of how I feel about nature in general. Like I hate what the losses that we're suffering and I want to stop them, but I also don't want to fall into only grief. There's like so much beauty that, you know, grief can blind you to the beauty that's still here. I'm definitely looking at bees differently because of the last beekeeper. I'm not sure I'm too adorable yet, but <laughs> I've, I've, I've moved way past horrible into like, yeah, we need them. We need them. Because I got a glimpse of what the world might be like without them in your book, and it's it ain't great. It's not. No. So be nice to bees, everyone. <laughs> well, we always close with some playful um, this or that questions just to get a, another view of the gal behind the books. Um, the first few are just multiple choice. You ready? <laughs> you pick one. All right. Okay. All right. Um, coffee or tea? Coffee. Dogs or cats? Oh, absolutely dogs. No question. <laughs> Uh, mountains or beach? Mountains. I'm going to ask that another way. Skiing or kayaking? Oh, that's mean. I know. That's really <laughs> mean. Okay. Wow, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'd say kayaking, but I say it very reluctantly. But I love skiing. So that, I, mm, I don't know. That's a tough one. <laughs> Did you grow up skiing and kayaking? Were these things that came to you young? No, I didn't start skiing till I was in my 30s, but I became a very quick addict. Um, three of my four kids um, either were or still are downhill ski racers. Um, my husband is an absolute junkie. Um, I'm the least accomplished skier in my family, but I ski a lot. Like I'm, an, I'm a fine skier, <laughs> but I just love it. I love being in the woods and the snow and it's just, it's so beautiful. Um, and the kayaking is a different rush. You know, it's a rush of quiet a rush of speed it's just you know the silence in the water and you know the lily pads and um the scene in uh waiting for the night song that area the cove that's very much the area where my uh where my farm is or I, my I, former farm <laughs> i wondered the that um that area felt so real that it's i thought real. it must have been based on something something real yeah um if i serve you pancakes would you like them with maple syrup or with honey oh, oh gosh Again, this is cruel um, you're taking my favorite things and it's like pitting my children against each other. That's the next oh, question. I, all right. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm going to have to go even on that. Honey and maple syrup are very dear to me in equal measure. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had honey on pancakes, so I'm going to have to think about it and give it yeah, a try. Try it. Yeah. Um, okay. This one we've covered half of, but not the other. So if you had to choose, these are some desert island books. So if you have to pick one, would you pick... Little House in the Big Woods or the Persian Pickle Club? Oh, wow. If 
Oh, you are really mean. Oh my goodness. Okay. I don't know. I think I'd have to go with the Persian Pickle Club and because the characters in that story are just so um, unexpected in so many ways. And it's a book that I don't know that everybody's read, but they should. It's just the characters and the, the um, unreliable um, narration that you get in that book is just stuck with me. I love that book. It's good times. Okay, another Desert Island pick. If you had to choose Jhumpa Lahiri as the interpreter of maladies or Audrey Nippenegger as the time traveler's wife. I have to go with interpreter of maladies, but for, I like them both so much, but for really different reasons. But I think the interpreter of maladies, there's so many more characters. If I was going to be on a desert island, I'd want more characters with me. <laughs> so I think I would, yeah. uh, I would go with interpreter of maladies. I, uh, I got to read that book on a train uh, traveling with my sister, and I read that first story, A Temporary Matter, and it just stopped me in my tracks that anyone could do that much, that beautifully. I, I have never forgotten that story. It was like Soba and Shukamura, and they are in these periodic um, blackouts and the intimacy and truth-telling uh, in the dark. Uh, that, that story just, I'm absorbed in that. Just so beautiful. And I also love the way she uses food in her stories, the preparation of the food, the care of food, the yearning of her food just really moves me. Yeah, I think you do some of that too. I yeah, was I was hungry for some of the beef jerky um, rice stew. <laughs> it's really funny because I'm a vegetarian, right? Some of that part. I don't think I've ever had beef jerky in anything except you know camping, but it was really good. I actually might be good. If you're starving, <laughs> I think it sounds pretty awesome. It does. A little protein. Um, okay, a few more. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Um, I'm both, um, but not in the same week. I, I don't, I am not a very regular sleeper. There are days I get up at five in the morning and I cannot get back to sleep. Um, yeah, so I, I'm a full-time writer now and my kids are a little older, so I'm not beholden to driving people to school or showing up at an office. So there are days I sleep in till 8.30 and there's days I'm up at five. And um, I think you're just as likely to find me writing at night in, as morning, although I'd say I'm probably more productive in the mornings. Um, but yeah. I don't think I fit into a neat box. I'm an early bird or a night owl. That's okay. Um, are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band-aids are? I am a risk taker with band-aids in my pocket at all times. I'm definitely a risk taker, um, but maybe I hedge myself in a couple ways. Yeah, I think it was Rebecca Mackay who said, I think the person who takes the risks should at least know where the band-aids are. <laughs> yeah, they're in my pocket. That's where they are. <laughs> These are a few fill-in-the-blanks. Um, if I wasn't working as a writer, I would be a... Oh, I know exactly what this one is. I would design tiny homes with, you know, the, you know tiny houses? You know, those little, like, yeah. the trendy little... I, I would... I'm or, or RVs, you know, that, you know, like, you know, personally for people. I love the economy of space in tiny homes and RVs, like the pop-up stairs, you know, things that pop up under the doors that a dining room table turns into a bed. I am absolutely fascinated with transformer furniture and economy of space. So I think I would be fabulous at designing very small spaces. I like that. There are whole TikTok channels. I'm sure you oh, found them. them that, that are <laughs> <laughs> things that fold into one another that fold up and lay flat and slide into, yeah. <laughs> My dream is to someday, somewhere, for some reason, own a monkey bed. I don't know why I need one, but I just want one because I should sleep there weekly. Yep, yep, they are fun. I remember sleeping in like an efficiency 
motel with my parents on what we were calling a vacation, but was also like funeral. We did that in my family. We're going on <laughs> vacation to a funeral. Um, and there was a Murphy bed that my sister and I got. Like, just how could you sleep on something so comfortable? We how cool is that? Yeah, it was really cool. That was fun. Um, let's see. What is something quirky? I feel like we covered a lot of quirky, but what's something quirky that folks don't always know about you? It could be a like, a love, a pet peeve. I'm a crier, like a big ugly crier um and i cry at the evening news i cry at commercials i cry on airplanes reading books i just like i i cry when i see someone else crying even if i don't know what they're crying about if i'm in a stoplight and i see a kid you know score a goal in a soccer field across you know the the road and he looks emotional i'll like well, i i can't help it and it's embarrassing a lot of times and i've developed an, an incredible talent that um I I can cry out of one eye, that I, I, I can't make myself not cry, but I can cry only out of my left eye, and um, so if I'm sitting with someone watching news, watching a movie, and I'm like completely mortified that I'm crying, I can make myself cry only out of my left eye, so I can put my hair over my face, and um, I think it's a, um, it's a real talent if you're a crier to be able to channel it. Louise Carrick Johnson has invented the one-eyed cry. <laughs> yep. That might be the next yeah, as I get older, I'm I'm a I'm a crier as well. I just cried with a new friend the other day, and I'm not sure she's gonna call me again. <laughs> um, so I yeah, I'm in the feelings. We're in the feelings. I think that's actually it's healthy. Um, what's a favorite book or movie or both? Wow. Okay. Um, I'll tell you, but my favorite books I've read lately. I do read a lot of books, you know, in that climate genre. But I Charlotte McConaughey, who wrote uh, Migration. And she wrote Once There Were Wolves. Those two books are stuck in my head more than anything I've read in a long time. They're both about um, species extinctions and, and hope. They're both bleak and hopeful and very nature-focused. They, I draw a lot of inspiration from Charlotte's writing. Um, and then on a completely different um, channel, have you read The Cave? Um, it's I can't remember. I'm blanking on the author's name, but it came out, I think, this summer. And it's about a, a, a group of women of a certain age who are, you know, becoming invisible to society, who um, they, they're, they basically become a little crime investigating team. And their, their menopausal um, <laughs> symptoms sort of develop into superpowers, like literal it. superpowers, not, not metaphorical superpowers. I was so there for it. I was like, yes, bring me the hot flashes that manifest into fireballs in their hands. You know, it was such a joy to read this book about women who aren't always centered in stories. It's called The Change, and I highly recommend this book. Absolutely love it. I am going to check that out. I've, I've, I've not read Once There Were Wolves, but I've been captivated by that title. I think it's Such really evocative, and, and you mentioned that it's both, um, both, you know, difficult subject matter, but also hope. You know, that yeah. it's hard to put dread and hope in the same book, but you need them both if I'm going to read this book. And that I could find some menopo menopausal crime fighters. I'm, oh, I'm, yeah. The content I'm here for. They are, they are incredible and unforgettable. If you read it, it hit me up. And I want to talk I will about let it. you. It I will report so back. Absolutely. And I'll make sure to link to that for other folks, too. That's most excellent. All right, last two here. What's your favorite ice cream? Uh, I like maple walnut ice cream. Absolutely. I also love salted caramel, but given the choice, I'd go for maple walnut. Well, you guys, are, if you're there in New Hampshire, I would imagine there's some maple around. Oh, yeah. All right. 
last one. If you were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see you doing? Probably kayaking, which might answer that question you asked me before about whether I like kayaking too. But uh, kayaking is my happy place. It's the calmest, most serene, thinking place of all. That's excellent. Well, Julie Carrick Dalton, thank you so much for coming by. Well, this was so much fun. I'm so glad I got a chance to talk. No, I'm grateful for you. You wrote, um, quote, the world's fragility makes it beautiful. We need to see the beauty, not just look at it, but look around it. And I've been, I've been trying to do that more. Thank you for reminding us to open our eyes to all that is difficult, but also all that is beautiful. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your words. And folks, if you haven't read them, um, Julie Carrick Dalton has two, she had a lot of writing out there, but there are two novels. So the first is called Waiting for the Night Song. And her most recent one, which is when you're hearing this out right now, called The Last Beekeeper, you can find both. They are hauntingly beautiful. Um, you can find them at, at an indie store near you. And to everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever the good has placed you. Be good to yourself. Be good to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael Gialoya. Producer Sarah Wilgrave and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.